for the Republican National Committee to censor two sitting members of Congress and also use the words legitimate political discourse in talking about January 6th. Well, let me give you my view of what happened January the 6th. And we're all, we're here. We're here. We, we, we saw what happened. It was a violent insurrection for the purpose of trying to prevent the peaceful transfer of power after a legitimately certified election from one administration to the next. That's what it was. With regard to the suggestion that the RNC should be in the business of picking and choosing Republicans who ought to be supported, uh, traditionally the view of the National Party Committees is that we support all members of our party, regardless of their positions on some issues. Do you have confidence in her, Robert McDaniels, chairman of the committee? Uh, I, I do, but the, the issue is whether or not the RNC should be sort of singling out members of our party who may have different views from the majority. That's not the job of the RNC. Season 2, Episode 4, A Sinking Ship. Welcome to Capital Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to news and analysis of the attack on the Capitol on January 6, 2021 in Washington, D.C. I'm Scott Kuhn. The intro of this episode was provided by Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who was asked to respond to a phrase that had appeared in a document officially censuring Representatives Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger for their service on the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack. That resolution included the phrase legitimate political discourse to describe the January 6th attack, and so the furor over the phrase has ultimately eclipsed whatever damage that the RNC had intended to inflict on Cheney and Kinzinger. Now, from the beginning, I've guessed that the events in the investigation of the January 6th attack would wind up coming to a head this summer. And, of course, we've had the announcement uh, from Benny Thompson and other members of the committee that we will have public hearings sometime this spring, uh, perhaps April, although we don't know. They, they appear to be not giving us a, a date certain. But nonetheless, um, you know, that's pretty much where I've always, always had. One of the reasons why I started this podcast, because, quite frankly, I knew we would have material uh, for a, a lot of episodes. And, of course, I am utterly obsessed with the threat to our democracy. So a couple of reasons, of course. I mean, it, it does take time. This was a uniquely complicated investigation that is ongoing, a uniquely complicated set of events. Um, but also, of course, this upcoming midterm election is a referendum on democracy itself. So uh, the cynical side of me has always thought that you would might want to maximize the electoral impact of this investigation. Uh, in part because the, the threat is real. The Republican Party today is so wedded to Trumpism that it must be defeated. And some of the events today have, have kind of, you know, I mean, nothing is, is dissuading me from that, that timeline, uh, the basic timeline that we're going to be looking at, uh, you know, public hearings. And then, and only after that, I think, uh, might you see the possibility even of arrests of people who are, are more central uh, to the, the events. could be wrong, um, and that is just a guess uh, based on how long it takes. And also, uh, presumably, uh, you would want to make hay while the sun shines. So, 
Um, I haven't really thought as much uh, about the interests of the Republican Party in all of this. It's obviously in the interest of the Democrats to win, but uh, this episode and some of the, the events that I've, I've been thinking about uh, really highlight the incentives that, and disincentives that are currently facing uh, the Republican Party uh, as the, these cases develop. Uh, for non-radicalized kind of institutionalist Republicans, um, you know, the ones who still, at least, you know, theoretically, uh, philosophically, support some ideal of electoral democracy, their interest lies in ripping off this bandage as soon as possible. And there are some of them who never cared for Trump, um, personally. And of course, you know, you had people like Ted Cruz, right? Uh, you know, who, you know, prior to um, Trump becoming the nominee, denounced Trump every every chance he could get in, in no uncertain terms. But that's not, <laughs> Ted Cruz is not really the kind of person I'm even talking about here. Um, so, I mean, it, it is nonetheless a, a bit paradoxical that you've got this problem of Trump and, you know, there's this expectation, this wildly built up expectation that Republicans are going to do great in the midterms. And I don't know how true that is. Now, you know, it's, um, it's an empirical regularity, but empirical regularities can sometimes get upended by the just not not merely random variation, but by by events, by historical events, as we saw in uh, the midterms, George W. Bush's first midterm election, um, where you know nine eleven happened and they won seats. Well, we had another attack on America this time by Americans uh, associated with a political party, and we'll see if there's there are actually electoral consequences, and ultimately. Um, it may be, you know, when you look at the, the decision calculus for Republicans, it may be better for them to rip that Band-Aid off more quickly. Um, you know, it may be that they can get this done with, purge the party of Trumpism, and try to come roaring back in 2024, free from the taint of this Trumpist attack on democracy. That would be the normal thing parties do when they lose, by the way. They don't storm the Capitol. They go back to the drawing board. They meet with their donors, they meet with their volunteers, they meet with political strategists, they meet with messaging people, and they try to come up with a, a plan to uh, become competitive electorally if they haven't been to that date. So I'll talk about that a bit later on, but I think we're seeing the first signs of some of that realization. Perhaps it's people who never liked Trump all that much to begin with, perhaps it's people who now see that he is a blight on the party, and if the Republican Party is to be competitive at the national level in non-gerrymandered states, um, they're going to have to do something about this party uh, problem of Trumpism and the legacy of the distrust of electoral politics that's evinced in this, uh, you know, the January 6th attack. Uh, and also, you know, quite frankly, it's a terrible message to take to voters, right? Vote for us. By the way, elections are fraudulent, right? So, I mean they would probably, presumably, want to get back to something resembling normal politics. And, of course, while we all focus on the House, we have to remember that in the Senate, the Senate map in 2022 um, is not great for Republicans. It never has been. It never was going to be. Uh, there are more vulnerabilities for Republicans 
rather than Democrats in the Senate. So it may even be sort of, you know, plausible scenario. Republicans pick up House seats, um, but uh, Democrats actually widen their margin in the Senate. And then we have, you know, what has really been the normal situation over the course of the last 30 years or so, which is um, divided government uh, with a divided Congress, a division between two houses, one with a Republican majority, one with a Democratic majority. Uh, or it could be that uh, Democrats even pick up seats in both houses. But in any event, so we are starting to see uh, some rats fleeing the sinking ship, finally, at long last, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But first, before uh, you know, we'll get caught up on recent events um, and we'll talk about some of the various figures that have been called to testify before the House Select Committee, um, the revelation that there have been 15 boxes of White House material that were taken back to the National Archives after being recovered at Mar-a-Lago, and then the fallout from the announcement by Trump's accounting firm that they've dropped him as a client and that they no longer stand by the figures that they produced on Trump's behalf from 2011 to 2020, which is pretty shocking. I'll talk about the consequences of that and some of the other events. Now, in the final segment of this episode, um, I kind of hate to do it, but it's going to be back to the Oath Keepers for a little bit. I know I kind of, you know, flogging a dead horse here, but I waited so long to actually do a dedicated episode on the Oath Keepers, and those cases are proving to be key literally right now. Uh, particularly the central seditious conspiracy case against Stuart Rhodes, um, which is, uh, you know, obviously since Rhodes' arrest, uh, a matter that is pretty central in the, the uh, investigations of the uh, Oath Keeper's role in the attack on the Capitol. So what I'm going to look particularly closely at this time is Rhodes's motion for release from pretrial detention and what it tells us about the way Rhodes intends to defend himself at trial. Now, my impetus for doing this is because uh, I had read the thing, and I looked at it, I was like, this is odd, this is oddly familiar. And I saw on Twitter that Rhodes' estranged wife, Tasha Adams, uh, said it reads like he wrote it. And of course, now that, you know, she said it, it really becomes obvious. And I've been reading Oath Keepers stuff on their uh, oathkeepers.org website for many years. And once you see it, it's kind of hard to unsee it. So I'll actually uh, go back and compare that legal document to uh, some of the, the screeds that he's written. Now, you know, when you're writing politically, it's a little bit different than uh, writing a legal brief. Nonetheless, there are some uh, some kind of telltale kind, kind of signs in there. And so I'll try to give examples of, you know, why that matters moving forward. Um, because the, the central argument that Rose is developing in this case has been the argument that's kind of justified the Oath Keepers all along, right? That uh, militias are legitimate, although they somehow are not themselves a militia. Um, their their status is, is ambiguous. Uh, but militias are legitimate and that, um, you know, they are a, a basically defensive group that is... Uh, merely protecting civil rights and civil liberties of all Americans, um, which again, you know, my own hypothesis is that was that was a ruse all along. Those were things that he said uh, to kind of 
draw attention away from the fact that, you know, essentially when you occupy that space of being a uh, paramilitary militia in the United States uh, that is comprised mainly of reactionary elements of society, you're going to wind up drifting further and further toward a fascist ideology, as eventually I think Rhodes himself did. Um, I think, you know, in the beginning, it's sort of, it's sort of crypto-fascist, right? He's got that list of 10 orders we won't obey. To my mind, those are 10 things that Stuart Rhodes always fantasized about. And then we saw in the execution of the attack on January 6th, where, you know, it's like, we're not going to surround cities. And he's out there probably saying, we have surrounded the city. I mean, absolute, you know, just um, <laughs> saying that we will not do these things that he secretly, uh, on, on some level, absolutely wanted to do. And again, in this legal argument, uh, he's trying to make the case that uh, it's purely protective, right? Well, okay, you're traveling from all across the country. You're, that's, that's not protective. You know, militias are local, right? You, there is no blanket authorization for anyone, uh, regardless of the status of the service, to just randomly go, uh, you know, wherever they show up and have a cache of weapons available. To, that's not a thing. That is not a thing. And the fact that he's trying to imagine that it is a thing, uh, similar to the idea that, you know, there's this imaginary Antifa that he's going to be fighting. You don't get to do that. You don't get to say, Godzilla's coming and therefore I have to assemble my own nuclear bomb and position it in my backyard. That's not a legitimate exercise. All right, so before we get to any of that, though, that's uh, going to be the last segment of the episode. As always, I'd like to track the progress of the uh, legal cases against the January 6th defendants and relying, of course, as always, on the count from the good people at Sedition Tracker. Now, the overall numbers kind of hit a, a little bit of a slow spot, apparently. Um, now, it, maybe I'm, I'm bringing this out a little bit more quickly than, than I usually do. I try to keep a, you know this on a uh, bi-weekly basis, uh, about two episodes. Uh, I, might, I might do three. Uh, this February, even though it's the shortest month, uh, a lot of things are happening. So I, I may actually pick that pace up a little bit if events warrant. I don't know. There have been 337 individuals charged, which is an increase of only four since our last episode. 353 indicted, an increase of only one since our last episode. So, so very slow period that we've had uh, with regard to new indictments. Three deceased, one dismissal. 215 convictions, plea bargains, uh, an increase of 12 since our last episode, and 89 sentencings, an increase of 7 since our last episode. Now, included in the, the recent arrests, and again, uh, there are only four since the last episode, are two defendants who are accused of assaulting federal officers, and I would like to focus on one of them in particular. That defendant is Matthew Bedingfield, 21, of Middlesex, North Carolina. Bedingfield was identified by what the government calls private citizens, who matched Bedingfield's pictures from the January 6th to publicly, a publicly available mugshot that he'd had from an earlier arrest that I'll wind up talking about at a moment. These private citizens called Bedingfield, uh, well, they assigned him hashtags, uh, soggy kid insider, because uh, you know he winds up uh, getting sprayed quite a bit, and uh, I, I believe winds up pouring water on himself, and you know many of these insurrections wind up being damp. And uh, Nazi gray hat, 
because I, I believe he's wearing like a, a gray beanie kind of a thing. And he also uh, at one point appears to make a Nazi salute. So according to this 28 page indictment, uh, which is really a, th a thing of beauty, I encourage you to look at it. Bettingfield was very active in and around the Capitol on January 6th, and he engaged in multiple assaults against officers with a variety of dangerous weapons. Mainly, he had a flagpole with an American flag on it, uh, and other points he winds up, uh, apparently, as many of the uh, insurrectionists are accused of doing, uh, allegedly through metal rods, perhaps from broken apart bike rack barricades at officers. So he's alleged to have attended the rally at the Ellipse with his father, and he became separated from him at some point as the mob moved from the Ellipse uh, to assault the, the Capitol on the west side of the building. Now, what's kind of interesting is that looking at this, uh, it became clear to me that the government is, is finally settled on a phrase. Um, they, they use the phrase private citizens multiple times to describe what we might call uh, sedition hunters or volunteer sleuths. So that's now the apparently the preferred term that the government is using now. And, you know, we'll see if they stick with that. Um, and they, they relied heavily on those materials uh, in, in this indictment. Um, now, in my mind, it's, it's, a, it's an accurate term, but it, it's a little bit leading, misleading, right? So to say, you know, private citizens. Um, insofar as many people who are actually engaged in this work are indeed citizens, but international citizens, right? I, there's, a, I think, a sense in which it, it almost understates and does not do credit to the movement um, to find these people. The effort to identify the people who were engaged in this fascist attack on electoral democracy in the United States is not limited to American citizens. Uh, it's something that is, you know, global. It's a global movement of relatively few people who nonetheless uh, really, you know, it's heartening. I think it is heartening to see uh, that a group of people can come together uh, to basically launch crowdsource effort to uh, find and, uh, you know, uh, give information to the government about this, you know, people who are attacking American electoral democracy. It's this demonstration of international solidarity in the face of, of a fascist attack that I think is is global. And so it's heartening to see. So um, anyway, private citizens, citizens of where, maybe citizens of the world. Uh, but, you know, I, I think it is, it's a good phrase uh, that, that they're using, you know, uh, just to, dis I mean, basically to distinguish people uh, from law enforcement. Although, um, you know, it, it is kind of interesting to just see that phrase occur over and over again when they've, they've, they've kind of struggled with, you know, what they're going to call people uh, who are doing work that is really of professional caliber and exceptional in apprehending uh, all of these people who attacked our democracy. In any event, Bettington is on camera, Bettingfield, sorry, is on camera jumping the barricades on the west side of the Capitol at uh, 12.57 on January 6th. Uh, and he's carrying a U.S. flag on a metal pole, allegedly. I mean, U.S., it's on camera, but allegedly. 
So by 106, he's really in the thick of it on the west side of the Capitol, uh, using the flagpole with the U.S. flag attached to strike, of course, at police. Um, you know, people are doing that with the, you know, thin blue line flags, you know, American flags. Uh, you know, um, people are probably not okay with kneeling or apparently okay with using uh, the American flag as a weapon to, to beat cops with. Of course, it, you know, he's not alone in this, obviously. Benningfield uh, enters the Capitol after fighting with the cops uh, at 2.38 p.m. I'll read directly from the indictment uh, for a moment to describe what happens next. Quote, Once inside, Benningfield goes up to the rotunda where he walks some laps, waving his flag and stomping around. Before long, Benningfield joins a group of rioters who attempt to storm the Senate wing. He and the mob get as far as the area outside the old Senate chamber. Bettingfield is once again toward the front of the group of rioters, and once again, Bettingfield appears to use his metal flagpole to strike or attempt to strike law enforcement officers. Bettingfield and other rioters return to the Great Rotunda after a chemical irritant is deployed. Uh, lovely turn of phrase there, right? You know, return to the Great Retreat! They retreat after they get maced. So, Bettingfield is attacking officers outside the Capitol, and he's attacking officers inside the Capitol, and um, he winds up ultimately exiting the Capitol at 3.07. So, he's fighting with uh, officers uh, and inside the Capitol for about two and a half hours, uh, inside the Capitol for, for about half an hour, and there's a lovely section in um, the Statement of Facts where they, they actually show, and I believe this is relying on information supplied by uh, private citizens, um, showing the, the movements of Bettingfield uh, on a very, very nice map that, you know, uh, is correlated with the video. Um, so, yeah, and also, I, I, I know I, I sometimes use these words loosely with regard to charging documents. This is from the Statement of Facts, uh, rather than... Um, the, the, the indictment. In any event, so one of the, the things that's most striking about this case, I, I, I don't mean, you know, to use a pun, but, you know, he's, he's arrested in Cary, North Carolina on February 8th. Now, it had been reported that uh, Bettingfield had been identified and information was submitted to the government nearly a year ago. And his identity was actually made public into the press, uh, by the press, in March of last year uh, in reporting from uh, the Huffington Post from Ryan Riley and Jessalyn Cook. So it apparently took the government quite a long time to come to North Carolina and get Bettingfield. Um, you know, and he appears to have been right here in North Carolina the whole time, not, not hiding out. Um, the other thing that, that makes this case interesting or stand out or notable is that Bettingfield, of course, which many of you will know, um, was out on bail for attempted murder uh, at the time of the January 6th attack. This is someone who was already in trouble with the law, had already shot a 17-year-old in the head, and yet decided to come attack democracy, to attack the peaceful transfer of power, in Washington on January 6, 2021, even though 
he was out on bail. He was originally a million dollar bond. Uh, then that was reduced to a hundred thousand dollars bond. Nonetheless, um, this is someone who, you know, uh, apparently doesn't care. So, you know, if, if you look at things like uh, pretrial detention, this is not someone they should let free. Arguably, if you're willing to uh, commit crimes, assaulting police at this magnitude, when you are out on bond for an attempted murder charge, this is not someone who should be released pending trial. Uh, he should definitely be detained. So we'll see. Now, Benningfield's father... Um, you know, made some characterizations of, about uh, this attempted murder charge. Um, ultimately, uh, you know, as I mentioned, originally million dollar bail, then that's reduced to a hundred thousand um, dollars. The the attempted murder charge winds up getting reduced. Uh, it, it apparently involves some kind of a dispute uh, at at Benningfield's car, and then when when that dispute or altercation is done. Um, the betting field winds up uh, using a handgun and firing off like basically a, a magazine full of rounds, only one of which winds up hitting uh, the intended target in the head who survived. Um, the 17 year old man was shot in the head and ultimately Benningfield is given a sentence for this crime, 24 months probation for assault with a deadly weapon, which seems rather light. Right, and this was probably this is after these federal charges were pending. So I mean, there that there might have been a very different outcome there uh, if the you know the government had done something. So, so something might is a little awful about that. Uh, it could be that maybe they thought, well, it's better to wait for the the state case to move forward before uh, we go get him. But um, that you know, it, it it's a little strange, and the the, the fact that his a sentence was so light. Two years probation for assault with a deadly weapon. So hopefully this time, uh, Mr. Benningfield, who's already participated in attempted coup, allegedly, uh, and has pleaded guilty to assault with a deadly weapon, uh, this is not someone who they should let go. And hopefully this will be taken into account uh, at his sentencing if he, and when he is sentenced. He now faces nine counts. And so hopefully the court is going to take all of that into consideration. All right, so let's move on now to some of the events that have also been taking place since the last episode. As I mentioned at the top of the show, RNC Chair Ronna McDaniel, Mitt Romney's niece, formerly Ronna McDaniel Romney, um, has garnered a lot of press for the passage of a motion censuring Representatives Cheney and Kinzinger and characterizing the January 6th attack as, quote, legitimate political discourse. This has been roundly condemned by a number of figures around Washington. Of course, again, I, I began the show with the, the statement from uh, minority leader Mitch McConnell. Uh, here's what Nancy Pelosi had to say on the subject. You've heard me say again and again that the Republicans seem to be having a limbo contest with themselves to see how low they can go. They seem to have reached rock bottom with their statement that what happened on January 6th was normal political discourse. Legitimate, legitimate political discourse. I've also said that Republican Party with country needs a strong 
Republican Party. It made great contributions to our country. I say this to Republicans all the time. Take back your party from this cult. Take back your party. America needs a strong Republican Party and a strong Democratic Party. But it has been hijacked, and it's disturbing that see to see that the Republican leader of the House ran, actually literally refused to condemn that resolution of legitimate political discourse. He literally ran away from the press when he was asked about his position. Uh, the Republicans can run, but they cannot hide from what happened on January 6th to call that legitimate political discourse. 140 law enforcement officers were wounded. Some people died. It was an, an assault on our capital, our Congress, more importantly, assault on our democracy. Now, the reference Speaker Pelosi was making there was, of course, uh, to House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, uh, who literally did free reporters. Um, I mean, he he was, I, it looked like Olympic speed walking. I mean, he was going at quite a pace to avoid the journalist who was asking questions about the phrase that the RNC had included in their motion to censure uh, Cheney and Kinzinger. In addition to Pelosi, there were other people, of course, uh, including a United States senator, um, Senator Mitt Romney. Ron and McDon McDaniel's uh, uncle, right? So they, they share uh, a grandfather, the, the former governor of uh, Michigan. And Mitt Romney said that, sorry, they don't share. <laughs> anyway, um, they're, they're a generation apart. But Mitt Romney said that the motion was wrong on two counts. Quote, one, to sanction two people of character as they did. But number two, to suggest that a violent attack on the seat of democracy is a legitimate political discourse is so far from accurate as to shock and make people wonder what we're thinking. And indeed, you know, everyone should wonder what they're thinking. So, you know, it's probably not surprising that Mitt Romney is coming out and, and saying this. Um, although, again, you know, it's a bit of an interesting family dynamic there where uh, you you have the RNC basically in the clutches of the Trumpist movement, so much so that McDaniel herself, uh, you know, has to basically parrot these these sentiments. Um, in addition to Romney, you had other Republicans, of course, you know, Kinzinger and Cheney I had some pithy things to say, uh, as did Senator Susan Collins of Maine, who also condemned the censure. Uh, again, not surprising. She's from the, the, the tiny, uh, sensible wing of the party. Um, you also had a comment from uh, former Mike Pence, chief of staff, Mark Short, who weighed in saying, quote, I didn't see a lot of legitimate political discourse on January 6th. Now, the RNC has attempted to, quote, clarify uh, their, their comments, but I don't think it's been particularly helpful. Um, they're trying to say, well, this wasn't aimed at January 6th itself, of course. It was aimed at the committee and the fact that they have subpoenaed the fake electors. To my mind, that just makes it worse, right? The fake electors are part of the attack on democracy. You don't have, the RNC should not have any part in trying to legitimize fake electors. 
And uh, they're looking at this one particular elector, uh, based on reporting in Politico, Kathy Burden, uh, who is really upset that she and other fake electors, fraudulent electors, have been subpoenaed to testify before the January 6th committee. Um, and, you know, is complaining that, uh, quote, she could face costly legal bills even though she was nowhere near the Capitol on January 6th and had nothing to do with the violence that occurred. Now, firstly, that presupposes that the, the fake electors had nothing to do with the violence that occurred, right? When indeed, you know, um, it could well be that the whole attack was staged in order to either force Congress to recognize these fake, fake electors, right, or to give them time uh, to, you know, delay the certification until after states could, uh, you know, supposedly send these slates of fake electors uh, to Congress, or rather, the, the uh, certification documents. So, yeah, you know, to, for them to, to, to make this claim, it's like the, the committee is doing their work, right? They have to do their work. And, you know, it's not politicization of legitimate political discourse. You don't have to get a lawyer. She could go without a lawyer. They could all go without lawyers and testify truthfully before the committee. The committee is not going to throw them in jail. Now, if they did something wrong, they may make a criminal referral. But their whole position is, this is legitimate political discourse. Why do you need an attorney if it's merely discourse? So the whole thing is in bad faith. And it's been a public relations fiasco, I think, uh, for McDaniel and the, the RNC as a whole, who, you know, have to get beyond this. They, they are going to have to find a way to get beyond Trump. Now, one man who appears to be trying to uh, negotiate the tightrope between, you know, for toward his political future uh, is Mike Pence, right? Who did at least put a little bit of distance between himself and Donald Trump by pronouncing that Donald Trump's theories to the contrary, Eastman memo theories to the contrary, uh, this, this claim that he had the power to nullify the election results, to nullify the will of the American people, uh, is just not actually something he had the power to do on January 6th or at any other time. Look, I understand the disappointment many feel about the last election. I was on the ballot. And I heard this week that President Trump said I had the right to overturn the election. But President Trump is wrong. I had no right to overturn the election. The presidency belongs to the American people and the American people alone. And frankly, there is no idea more un-American than the notion that any one person could choose the American president. Under the Constitution, I had no right to change the outcome of our election. And Kamala Harris will have no right to overturn the election when we beat them in 2024. And, of course, they all clapped at the partisan line at the end. Those were Mike Pence's comments with, uh, before the Federalist Society. Now, interestingly, the Federalist Society is officially nonpartisan, even though, of course, they are a Republican front group, mainly centered around judicial issues. Um, for tax purposes, they're, they're not supposed to be engaged in partisan events. And yet, when you have Mike Pence declaring... Uh, you know, essentially a partisan talking point 
uh, they all stand up and clap. So things that make you go, hmm. Um, but nonetheless, that is improvement for Mike Pence. He has signs of, of growing a backbone uh, in, you know, showing, you know, rightly that, you know, he doesn't have the power to overturn elections, uh, which is based upon a comment of uh, Donald Trump, right, who finally said uh, the, the word overturn, right, uh, in one of his, you know, various screeds there, you know, wasn't carefully vetted by a, an attorney or staff. So there are signs of life in the Republican Party, and they're going to have to put Trump and Trumpism behind them. Whether or not they'll be successful, I don't know. I mean, Donald Trump is a man. He's mortal. At some point, something is going to happen where he's no longer able to, to run for president. Uh, you know, who knows? Maybe it'll be a dynasty, and you've got Eric and Don Jr. or Ivanka running uh, along behind him. Um, but, you know, uh, as far as the future of the Republican Party goes, uh, whether it be Pence or uh, Mitch McConnell, you know, the, the, the Kevin McCarthy stance of just running away is not a viable strategy long term. And so they have to find a way out of this predicament. There, there, there is a bit of a, you know, an odd situation that maybe the, the committee, the House Select Committee uh, to investigate the January 6th attack could be saving them from themselves, right? If they, you know, taint the Trumpist wing of the party and wind up, uh, you know, putting distance between uh, actually viable Republicans and uh, that wing of the party, it could well be that um, they wind up doing well in 2024. But it looks like some of the rats have started to leave the sinking ship. And brings me to the, the, the final question is, what do they know? You know, Washington is not such a large town, and these people are operating in the context of uh, Congress, which is relatively small, right? I mean, I, Mike Pence obviously is no longer in Congress anymore, nonetheless, uh, long-time figure. And so, you know, I'm sure he still has connections. What do they know? And, you know, the committee itself has been relatively leak-proof, but people talk. And so they may have some inkling that uh, the, the jig is up, that the window is closing for Trumpism, and that Trumpism is essentially done. I'm hopeful, anyway. And, you know, if we're looking at tea leaves or disemboweling chickens, uh, hair is spicy, right? Uh, using, uh, you know, entrails of animals to do some kind of augury. I, I take this as a hopeful sign that perhaps institutional Republicans are trying to move beyond Trump and Trumpism. Maybe they'll, they'll take a drubbing in this next election, maybe not. Um, but in any event, they're beginning to see a future for themselves and the Republican Party beyond Trump. Because, you know, uh, even if you weren't a fan of pre-Trump Republicanism, you have to admit that this, you know, a party that is not dedicated to attacking electoral democracy in the United States is better than one that is. Could it be that the reason why we see people such as Mitch McConnell and Mike Pence reversing course on Trump is because they suspect that the investigations are reaching the point of no return? As I discussed in the first episode of this season, A New Phase, uh, which was released on the one-year anniversary of the Capitol attack, 
Not one day goes by now without new news, major news, the kind of news that would have been the subject of months of reporting in almost any other era. And yet the pace of things now is such that there's not even time to digest one new set of facts before something else comes along that's even more compelling. And it's not being driven by the news cycle itself, but rather by new information. So is it a coincidence that McConnell's denunciation of the legitimate political discourse gaffe by the Republican National Committee happened on February 8th? The censure vote and the accompanying statement happened on February 4th. McConnell could have responded immediately. Maybe he was responding to something even more recent. What happened on February 7th, for example? On February 7th, the story broke that the Trump administration had stolen documents from the White House that were supposed to have been sent to the National Archives, some 15 standard office-sized boxes full of material. All of this material was retained in direct violation of the Presidential Records Act, which itself was enacted in the late 1970s, I don't know, 78 or 79, I believe, uh, for the express purpose of thwarting the possibility of a criminal enterprise in the White House that might brazenly attempt to cover up malfeasance by destroying its old records. We don't know what was in those boxes, but you can imagine. Uh, sometimes, you know, as with Watergate, it's not the crime itself so much, perhaps, as the cover-up. Now, this isn't like when the mob ransacked the Capitol and wound up with tourist brochures and uh, PR PowerPoints. This is a curated set of documents. They went through and they picked the stuff that they wanted to keep. And we can assume that those are the ones that they most didn't want to see enter the public record. There is no benign explanation for the retention of this material. We know what some of it is. Uh, there were letters apparently exchanged with North Korea's supreme leader, Kim Jong-un. There are various keepsakes that Trump wasn't supposed to keep. Uh, during official visits, uh, heads of state often give items to the president. These are supposed to be public property, especially if they are above a certain value. Um, and uh, Trump apparently just, you know, kept a lot of that stuff because why not? He's Trump. Um, there was a, the, the famous hurricane map that uh, Trump scribbled on with a Sharpie. So that sort of thing. The, you know, those kind of materials that may not really have anything that might be evidential. But uh, there are certainly documents that were supposed to go to the National Archives um, because all the documents are supposed to go to the National Archives. And the fact that they didn't themselves is a violation of the Presidential Records Act. So the question is, is it possible that uh, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has some idea what might be included in those 15 boxes? Politico broke the story about Trump's habit of tearing up documents all the way back in 2018. And he apparently carried on tearing up documents throughout the entire course of his presidency. The first of the latest batch of stories about Trump's destructive habits came out in a story published in the Washington Post on January 31st, a story that relied on sources inside the administration and was also confirmed by the National Archives. And they told the Post that they had received many documents that had been torn up and taped back together. 
Uh, Trump apparently has a habit of, uh, apparently rather neatly, tearing documents into quarters, right? So one long tear down the middle, another tear down the sides. You know, that is, is his version of document destruction. Uh, the statement from the National Archives that uh, accompanied this article was as follows. Quote, White House, House records management officials during the Trump administration recovered and taped together some of the torn up records. These were turned over to the National Archives at the end of the Trump administration, along with a number of torn up records that had not been constructed by the White House. The Presidential Records Act requires that all records created by presidents be turned over to the National Archives at the end of their administrations. The Politico story in June of 2018 had claimed that Trump regularly tore up documents. So that's, that's not new, right? But the reporting here focused on the fact that various staffers, in an effort to actually comply with the Presidential Records Act, would go behind Trump and tape these documents back together in an effort to uh, preservation. They don't want to be accomplices to his uh, destruction of documents and his obstruction, so they tape it back together and they put it in the filing cabinet uh, or somewhere. So part of what was new in the latest reporting is that it became apparent that apparently at some point these people just gave up, right? Um, because there's there are, there are documents that, that weren't taped together, that Trump regularly tore up so many documents that it just wasn't possible for them to actually you know, forensically reconstruct, even though he's only tearing them in quarters, apparently, not into tiny little itty-bitty bits. Uh, you know, apparently there's just documents, so many torn-up documents, that they, they couldn't even tape them back up together. Presumably the National Archives, and maybe that's part of why this is taking so long, went through and uh, taped them back up uh, together. So this is just ridiculous, right? I mean, if you were to put this in a screenplay about the presidency... Critics would say this is unrealistic because presidential administrations of both parties routinely comply fully with the Presidential Records Act as a matter of course. This is something that's just not questionable. And yet, apparently, in the Trump administration, tearing up documents was a daily occurrence. And again, like so many other stories uh, related to the Trump presidency and January 6th, this just gets worse and worse the longer it goes on and the longer people look at it. So there was also a February 6th story uh, that resulted from an interview with Omarosa Manigault Newman, uh, who's the former presidential assistant to uh, Trump when he was in the White House and a uh, contestant on his uh, reality television show, The Apprentice. And she had this to say. Donald, in my in my view, was chewing what he had just torn up. 
Um, and his habit of tearing these things up, my heart truly goes out to the people who are responsible to going into the trash bin, recovering these things. But there are certainly things that I'm sure cannot be accounted for because Donald Trump became very, very aware that a lot of these sensitive documents would at some point be made public. Tell me a little more about this because I, 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 I don't know if my viewers fundamentally understand this. So Donald Trump sitting somewhere, he's whatever, he gets up to walk away. And people go and take the papers there, whether they're ripped up or or the papers on his desk so that he doesn't rip them up. Is that how that worked? Yes. In fact, we get a very big briefing about presidential records and management. So there's a trash bin and there's even a burn bag for documents that are not significant enough and they put them in the back. So there's two different systems. And we have been told that if you're with the president and he throws something away or he hands you something, you have to account for that. And in fact, there's a whole secretary who's dedicated to these documents, which is why on the day that Michael Cohen was leaving the Oval Office, I walked back in and I saw Donald Trump, you know, looking around. He looked very concerned about what, what, whatever was exchanged and shared and whatever was on this particular paper seemed to be of great concern to him and something that he did not want the American people to see. So he tore it up like he usually does. But then he put it in his mouth, Allie. So, I, you know, at the time, I know I got a lot of criticism about sharing this story, but it was very bizarre because I've known him for so long. He is a germaphobe. He never, you know, he never puts paper, obviously, in his mouth. But on this occasion, he did, which makes me worry that there are a lot of documents that may not be accounted for, that there may be documents that can tell the full story about what encounter, what happened on the days leading up to January the 6th, for instance, that we may never, ever see or may never come to light. So Omarosa obviously has been a close associate uh, of Trump for many years. Uh, until her falling out with him, of course, because like many narcissists, you know, eventually they discard people. Uh, nonetheless, you know, I mean, this was a story, as she pointed out, people were like, what? He's eating paper? No, come on. Uh, I don't know if this is pica or some sort of weird thing, but no, you know, she points out he's apparently germ germaphobic. Um, but yet, if push comes to shove, uh, you know, he's using his, his mouth. Uh, as a paper shredder. So, um, you know, that's just weird, right? And it's credible because she's been saying this for years. And now another story comes along. Hey, Trump destroyed documents. And, you know, back in, yes, yes, he not only will he destroy them, but he will actually eat them if push comes to shove. So you would think that this would be all of the story, but no. So on February 10th, the New York Times access journalist, Maggie Haberman, uh, comes out with a story. Now, this, you know, Haberman is someone who, of whom I am fundamentally critical, right? This is access journalism at its worst. Um, back in the last administration, you know, she just kept pushing this Clinton email story over and over and over again, you know, uh, just writing hundreds of bylines, uh, you know, having hundreds of bylines on this story. And yet here during the Trump administration, she's come up with a whole bunch of stuff that is apparently damning, but she's saving it for a book, right? So this is someone who relied on her access to, and there, there have been other stories that where Haberman was used as an outlet for uh, the Trump administration party line. 
And Haberman really reminds me of Judith Miller, right? Judith Miller was the source, or rather the, the reporter, who relied uncritically on sources from within inside the Bush administration in her reporting for the New York Times uh, that really justified the Iraq war in the run-up to that entire scheme to uh, effectively eliminate one of Saudi Arabia's regional competitors, uh, you know, by you know, the, the U.S. campaign to eliminate Iraq in the service of the Saudi crown. And Judith Miller uh, played a huge role in just promoting this story in the New York Times uncritically, uh, you know, thanks to the fact that she had access to these sources uh, within the Bush administration and national security. Uh, so this is, you know, the worst kind of access journalism. And so I'm not being an apologist uh, for Haberman here. I think that Haberman actually has a lot to answer for in the way she pushed the stories regarding uh, Clinton and, uh, you know, the, the way she treated stories regarding Trump, right? She, uh, in it's documented that she was the go-to person when they, the Trump uh, folks wanted to get a, a story out there, uh, the, you know, effectively to, to mount a disinformation campaign. So don't buy her book. Do not buy Maggie Haberman's book. At any rate, uh, Haberman keeps the ball rolling. There's a story, she hops on it, and she reveals in an interview with Axios that her upcoming book on the Trump administration contains the detail that Donald Trump would tear up documents regularly, and which, again, we already knew, uh, but also would attempt to dispose of them in the toilet. She would, you know, they would, he would tear them up and apparently try to dispose of them in the toilet, and this would result regularly in toilets in the White House residence being clogged. So that's, that's just one story, right? And that's the kind of story that we are, apparently is the new normal today. Uh, we probably shouldn't normalize this, but the utter lawlessness of the Trump administration is almost beyond human comprehension, uh, or at least it's almost impossible to overstate the utter lawlessness of the Trump administration. You can't overstate it. Uh, you could make up damning details about the worst things that the Trump administration has done, and yet sooner or later it'll turn out that the stuff that you imagined was true, and that there are actually worse things that are true. I mean, so, you know, you've got just unbelievable stuff. Trump is keeping documents that he's supposed to hand over to the National Archives, uh, but he's tearing up documents. He's shredding documents. He's flushing documents. He's eating documents. So, you know... Again, uh, the worst case nightmare scenario, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't even know uh, what it would be. But if you're a document in the Trump White House, you know, it, it's a remarkable, in fact, that, that we actually have anything at all. So McConnell and others in official D.C. Republican circles have to have realized to some extent how bad all of this is. Uh, when McConnell denounced the censure resolution by the Republican National Committee, he probably had some awareness that there would be a criminal referral from the National Archives. And that indeed actually happened on February 10th. On February 10th, uh, the National Archives referred 
the Trump administration to the Department of Justice for this illegal uh, retention of documents in the violation of the Presidential Records Act. Now, the, this is the first real criminal referral that is so closely aimed at Trump. And the PRA itself is, is actually relatively toothless. There's not a lot of criminal penalties there. I, I know a lot of people have been saying things like, well, you can't run for office. No, it's, it's not true. I mean, it really is toothless. Uh, there's no real criminal penalties. I reread it. Um, and, and that's an important question, right? Congress ought to revisit the fact that the PRA has no real criminal penalties. But... If it turns out that Trump withheld documents that do relate to criminal matters, then there is the very real possibility that obstruction charges could be uh, forthcoming. So um, apparently Trump aides, uh, I think, were aware of this. And some of the reporting on this question shows that they were careful to maintain the documents in a condition that they would actually be available if uh, anyone came to get them. So there's some awareness that these documents actually are legally relevant, and that's why we have them today. Now, those are just the documents, of course, that Trump illegally withheld. There's also the matter of the release of documents that were actually handled properly, uh, that were handed over to the National Archives um, in, in the, the way that it's proper. There's been a, the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack has asked that all these documents be turned over. Uh, and this process has taken a long time. Uh, the Biden administration uh, has refused to uphold the Trump claims of privilege, but of course that has needed to resolve itself. Uh, there is no former executive privilege. And so it now turns out that these documents will be handed over to the committee. It's taken seemingly forever for the Nash, uh, the reviews that need to be done to be concluded, but it has been announced by the National Archives that this entire trove of documents will be handed over to the committee on March 3rd. So hopefully the National Archives are actually indexing and archiving as they go along, uh, because that would greatly aid the committee in their work. Now, there's something else that's been happening in D.C. that D.C. Republicans may know more about than the media and the general public, which are the closed-door sessions of the House Select Committee. I'm sure that they are following everyone who's actually on the schedule. Um, the House Select Committee has been on a real tear, and they've been conducting hearings and issuing uh, lots of new subpoenas. problem for someone like me, anyway, is that they're doing all this behind closed doors. And there's very little information except what they want to give uh, out in dribs and drabs, usually po to Politico. So uh, we do know, for example, that uh, Greg Jacob, who served as the chief counsel for former Vice President Mike Pence, did testify before the committee and that his testimony took somewhere between eight and a half and nine hours on February 1st. Now... I can guess what kind of questions that Jacobs was asked when he was hauled in front of the committee. When did he become aware of the Eastman memo? Uh, when did he become aware of the scheme uh, for states to appoint fraudulent electors? Uh, what was the process whereby the Pence decided 
to reject the idea that he could unilaterally overturn the results of a presidential election. Uh, when did Pence have any personal knowledge or when did he have any personal knowledge of various attempts by people in the Trump administration and Trump himself to put pressure on Pence, etc. But as of now, again, you know, we know that this testimony occurred. We don't know what he said, uh, and we won't know until the committee itself actually holds these public hearings, which are, again, penciled in for April. So uh, by that time, I, I think that, that may be part of the hard deadline. They will have had time to review the, the document trove that came from the National Archives. We also know, with regard to this kind of testimony, that Rudolph Giuliani has apparently agreed to testify and cooperate with the committee. Now, I view this with a great deal of skepticism, and I'm sure that this skepticism is shared by members of the committee itself. Rudy Giuliani organized much of the attempt to overturn the election personally. And you'll notice that I'm not going to say alle allegedly in this context. Rudy Giuliani conspired to overturn the 2020 election results and had direct knowledge of the entire plot. And I can say this rather unequivocally because um, I have absolutely confidence that Rudy Giuliani isn't going to be filing lawsuits against people uh, regarding this kind of question because he's up to his neck in it. And a lawsuit of this nature would entail the disclosure of facts that he doesn't want to be made public. Rudy Giuliani is one of the central architects of the attempt to overturn and overthrow, as Trump said, the results of the 2020 election. Here's what um, Representative Jamie Raskin had to say with regard to the potential Rudy Giuliani testimony. About uh, the, the, the former lawyer to the former president, Rudy Giuliani, and his cooperation with the committee. Well, we expect him to cooperate. Um, you know, basically every systematic uh, defense to uh, against cooperation has been shot down by the courts. There's just nothing valid there. If you want to plead the Fifth Amendment because you have an authentic and honest belief that you might incriminate yourself, well, we respect that, uh, but we respect it in the way that the courts uh, have upheld it, which is it has to be something that you assert in person. Uh, to specific questions and not some kind of magic wand that you try to wave over the entire proceedings. So, you know, we're, we're willing to hear what Giuliani's got to say, but he has an obligation, like every other American citizen, to participate. And again, the big picture here, to my mind, Chris, is the vast majority of people, whatever side they were on in these horrific events, uh, the vast majority of people have come forward to participate and are cooperating with the committee, which is why we know so much. And so Giuliani, um, there were a series of negotiations, and apparently he's going to cooperate. You can you can hear the air quotes. Um, now the danger is, of course, you know, I, I don't think that he's going for him anyway. The danger is I, I don't think he's going to intentionally incriminate himself. I mean, he was a prosecutor, um, but you know, I don't think he's going to intentionally in incriminate Trump. But we know that also too that he is someone who. Uh, does like to, uh, you know, he imagines himself to be more clever than he actually is. Let me, let me put it that way. He's he's kind of disorganized. This is the kind of person who doesn't know the difference between a five-star hotel and a, a landscaping company. So it's kind of inevitable that he's going to screw this up. And, um, you know, 
uh, look forward to that, right? You know, although again, the process will be well, he'll come before the committee, the committee will, will interrogate him. Uh, you know, you'll get people like Adam Schiff and Jamie Raskin and Liz Cheney and Benny Thompson asking questions. And I, you know, again, this we wish it could be televised, um, but you know, they'll get valuable testimony, I'm sure, from Rudy Giuliani. Uh, he's you know, the, the kind of person who thinks he'll be able to, to testify and keep himself safe and, and probably won't. So in addition to this, we've also had subpoenas issued from the January 6th committee for the fraudulent electors from the swing states that Biden won, that Trump criminally claimed were actually won by him. So the January 6th uh, select committee has subpoenaed 14 electors who were required to comply with the subpoenas for documents by February 11th. So that's already happened, presumably. And was, of course, in that context, right, you know, that the Republican National Committee came out with their, their, their you know, fear-mongering, oh, the, the committee is overstepping, this is legitimate political discourse. No, appointing fraudulent uh, electors and serving as a fraudulent elector, you know what, constitutionally, if the rule of law still applies, People should be able, willing to ask questions. If you're willing to step up and serve uh, as a fraudulent elector for uh, in an effort to overturn the election results of a resounding electoral victory by more than seven million votes, then you need to, you know, be willing to step up and testify and say what you know about the efforts to unconstitutionally overturn that election, which is why what the RNC did was, you know, absolutely appalling. I mean, a bridge too far, even for someone like Mitch McConnell. In addition to those folks, uh, other subpoenas have been issued, and, uh, you know, again, th there's more. I'm not going to go down the entire list. Uh, but I would like to single out uh, some white supremacist groipers, Nick Fuentes and Patrick Casey. So these are people who were, uh, you know, basically, uh, I don't know if you want to use the label alt-right anymore, but these are fascists, right? Uh, Fuentes is a neo-Nazi podcaster, and Casey is leader of the American Identity Movement, which was formerly called Identity Europa, which, Europa, uh, somehow they... they they wind up spelling it with a V uh, in, you know, aping uh, Roman style. So Identity Europa was rebranded, of course, in the wake of Charlottesville, right? So it's now called the American Identity Movement. You'll be familiar with them. They are the guys who, you know, still to this day, uh, wind up wearing like khakis and polo shirts, and they'll show up in places like Philadelphia, and they've got their, their shields, and uh, they like to march in a fascist Nazi fashion. And um, Fuentes and Casey were formally close associates with one another, uh, but they publicly broke with one another after the events of January 6th. Um, but they were being called to testify on the same day, uh, Feb February 9th, actually. So that's already happened. And uh, in the run-up to this, Fuentes publicly welcomed the opportunity to testify. Now, a number of people who are affiliated with the Groiper or America First movement, again, these are fascists, uh, have already, you know, were already arrested uh, in the wake of January 6th. 
And the, the testimony that is forthcoming from Fuentes and Casey is significant in part because it shows a direct link between the Trump White House and overtly white supremacist fascists. There's no kind of privilege which applies to these kinds of extremists. These are not people who occupied any kind of official position. These were not people who were serving as attorneys. And also, just kind of personally, these are people who are arrogant, and they believe the law doesn't apply to them. So I would have loved to have seen someone like Jamie Raskin or Schiff or uh, Cheney or Kinzinger or Thompson or anybody else uh, handle this line of questioning. You know, that would have been wonderful. And I think that, you know, these these boys, because that's what really they are, these are, you know, uh, immature boys who are never taking responsibility for anything and you think it's cool to go out and, you know, uh, ape Nazis and deny the Holocaust. Uh, you know, they found out that the internet and reality are two different things. So, you know, they're not John Eastman. Uh, they don't get to claim attorney-client privilege or executive privilege or any kind of privilege. Um, and also, I, I think just, you know, kind of personally, these, they're proud of their connections to the Trump administration. They, they got the mainstream uh, extreme far-right, uh, their extreme far-right white supremacy mission. So, of course, they're going to talk to the committee, right? Uh, and they're, they're probably not clever enough to take the Fifth Amendment. Um, these are the most reprehensible, racist, fascists that you can possibly imagine, and yet they were VIP insurrectionists on January 6th. So I think that the media has actually overlooked this connection between overt white supremacist Nazis and the January 6th insurrection. So, um, you know, that's the thing that happened. And uh, we get to for look forward to hearing what actually happened with these, you know, fully paid up Charlottesville Tiki Torch Nazis and uh, during their testimony with the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack. All right, two more quick stories I'd like to touch on uh, again that have broken quite recently uh, before I move on to the Oath Keepers. Uh, to Stuart Rhodes's motion to uh, get himself out on bond, and uh, also uh, his pre-trial detention hearing on Wednesday uh, at 3 p.m., which I was able to listen to and take notes. Uh, before we get to that, I'd like to talk to about two quick news stories. Again, continuing the theme of just bad news happening in, to Trump and in MAGA land. Uh, if you've been following this closely, you'll know that one of these is the story about Trump's accounting firm, Mazars USA. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Mazars served notice to the Trump organization that it would no longer retain them as a client and that they could not stand by their financial accounts covered in the period uh, 2011 to 2020. Again, when I say accounts, I mean uh, the accounting work that they did on behalf of the Trump Organization. The letter that was written to notify the Trump Organization of this was written to the Chief Legal Officer of the Trump Organization by William J. Kelly, who serves as the Chief Counsel for Mazars USA. I'll read from that rather quickly here. Dear Alan, we write to advise that the statements of financial condition for Donald J. Trump for the years ending June 30th, 2011 to June 30th, 2020, should no longer be relied upon 
and you should inform any recipients thereof who are currently relying upon one or more of those documents that those documents should not be relied upon. What does that mean? Okay, they're talking about creditors, right? They're talking about these statements of financial condition that Mazar has provided, you know, on Trump's behalf, and um, they are no longer uh, seen by Mazar's USA as accurately reflecting the true financial condition of the Trump Organization during the periods in consideration. Letter continues. We have come to this conclusion based in part upon the filings made by the New York Attorney General on January 18th, 2022, our own investigation, and information derived from internal and external sources. So they did their own audit, and they looked at it, and they decided that um, the numbers weren't right. Goes on, while we have not concluded that the various financial statements as a whole contain material discrepancies, based on the totality of the circumstances, we believe our advice to you is to no longer rely upon these financial statements as appropriate. And then they go on with some boilerplate language, try to say that they were on the up and up all along, that this isn't their fault. Uh, you know, quote, they performed its work in accordance with professional standards. A subsequent review of these work papers confirms this. So it's, it's not surprising that Mazar's USA investigated itself and found nothing wrong. Um, but this is obviously a very drastic and unusual step. And just take note of the language. Mazar's refers to a conflict of interest between their firm and the Trump organization. Quote, due in part to our decision regarding the financial statements, as well as the totality of the circumstances, we have also reached the point such that there is a non-waivable conflict of interest with the Trump organization. As a result, we are not able to provide any new work product to the Trump organization. So again, dumping you as a client, we don't stand by this anymore. And because we cannot affirm the accuracy of our statements of financial condition that we you know, drive from information that you provided to us, uh, we are, we have a conflict of interest. There's an ongoing legal case, more than one actually. And as a consequence, you need to find somebody else to cook your books. I mean, do your accounting. So um, it, it raises some interesting questions. Obviously, we know that Trump himself uh, is a crook. He is a criminal. He has operated a criminal enterprise for decades. Uh, Mazars itself is uh, the U.S. subsidiary of the global French accounting firm Mazars and is the 28th largest accounting firm in the U.S., uh, I believe, by uh, total revenue. Um, and maybe by uh, size of accounts, I don't know, but I think that's by uh, their income. Now, they provided millions of pages of material related to the Trump account in February 2021 to the Manhattan District Attorney. And this isn't even the first strain on the relationship between Mazars USA and the Trump Organization. In 2019, former Trump Organization attorney Michael Cohen testified before the House Oversight and Reform Committee that Trump basically kept two sets of books, one for tax purposes and one for the purposes of, of obtaining credit. So again, we've known this for quite some time. Uh, 
As a matter of fact, I, you know, some people said, well, they knew about this in the 80s, how, you know, they've been able to evade justice for this long um, speaks to the inability and the, the incapacity and the sheer impotence that our entire financial legal infrastructure has with regard to uh, financial crimes committed by uh, very high net worth individuals, uh, the oligarchs, basically, like Trump. So... In any event, in 2019, uh, Mazars gets issued a subpoena from Congress, from the Oversight and Reform Committee, and uh, they claim that they want to comply with it, but Trump actually sues Mazars USA to keep that information privately. Uh, so ultimately, that case winds up going all the way to the Supreme Court, and they issue a 7-2 to two decision, which winds up restricting the ability of Congress to obtain financial documents from the president on the basis of separation of powers argument. Um, you know, basically saying, well, you're, you know, Congress, this would give Congress too much power over the presidency. And it is interesting that it's a seven to two decision, right? I don't know. You know, there's a whole body of literature within uh, the stuff on judicial politics on the Supreme Court about, you know, deal making and how uh, folks try to, you know, maintain the legitimacy of the institution by, uh, you know, creating these majorities that make it look like there's more consensus than there really is. Uh, you know, this is a Roberts court. Maybe he's particularly good at that. I don't know. It is novel uh, interpretation. Um, so apparently, you know, you can, if you really want to commit financial crime, uh, you need to become president of the United States because that way yeah, you won't be held to account thanks to the Supreme Court decision uh, Mazars USA versus Trump, or Trump versus Mazars USA, I forget which it is. So ultimately, the congressional uh, subpoenas uh, wind up expiring without Trump ever actually having to comply. Uh, although, again, uh, Congress now has those documents. So, and of course, the New York DA, right, uh, has, has those documents. So uh, we lay aside... Uh, the significance of the Supreme Court decision uh, for a moment. Uh, this story, to me, just connects directly to the January 6th attack. Uh, you know, in, in the sense that, yeah, maybe that's why he wanted to stay president, you know. Um, right? He, he, you know, he needed to remain president to avoid prosecution. But that's, you know, maybe I, it's only direct in my mind. Maybe that connection is is more tenuous than that. Uh, that's just really speculative. Um, but, you know, he had potentially incriminating uh, financial information. And the Supreme Court said, yeah, you know what? Uh, it, it, can, it can be private thanks to separation of powers. Uh, but, of course, that decision doesn't apply to the, the New York Attorney General. And also, to my mind, the statement winds up raising questions about the role of Mazar's USA and other big accounting firms with regard to high net worth clients, oligarchs like Trump. Um, Mazars had to have been aware of this, uh, certainly at least since 2019. Uh, you know, they went, I mean, they went to the Supreme Court, right? You know, they wanted to comply. Uh, you know, they, I mean, <laughs> again, they, you know, um, yeah, so I mean, th there's no way that they didn't know about this scheme. So, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if maybe they can look into the services that they're providing 
some of their other clients. Um, you know, it's interesting that it's a French firm, right? But I, I suppose if you're a global accounting firm, uh, you have to be doing business in the United States because, you know, uh, if you want to uh, deal with people who have a lot of money and the ability and the willingness uh, to, to avoid taxes uh, and to commit financial crimes, you're going to have to deal with the United States. You're going to have to specifically be in New York City. So, uh, you know, those French, they're, they're not sending the, their best people. Uh, you know, I, I know that there are tax avoidance schemes in France as well and in, in other places in the EU. Um, you know, I'm not suggesting that that's the, the bulk of their work. But this does raise questions about, you know, like, again, Panama Papers kind of questions, right, with regard to the work that these big accounting firms provide people such as Donald J. Trump. And even as I was recording uh, these earlier segments, uh, a new bit of news uh, emerged that's actually directly related to the Mazar story, because, of course, um, that reporting that the letter to Trump was initiated because of the activities of the New York Attorney General, Letitia James. And um, so it just happened that a judge in in the New York State civil case James is using a two-pronged strategy. There's a civil case and a criminal case. Um, has ruled that Donald Trump, Donald Trump Jr., and Ivanka Trump all must give sworn depositions about the business practices at the Trump Organization within the next 21 days. And so it's been reported. I'm not an attorney, uh, but it does make sense. Uh, because this is a civil case, uh, it means that the use of the Fifth Amendment uh, is less useful to the defendants here, or uh, basically because they, uh, if, you know, you can't say, well, it doesn't mean anything. A civil case that actually says, well, you know, you're acknowledging that's that's an acknowledgement of uh, some awareness of the nature and the wrongfulness of your acts. So, um, at this point, I, I can't even keep track of how many legal proceedings there are uh, against Trump and the Trump Organization at this point. Um, and these aren't even questions that are directly related to the January 6th attack, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them uh, here. But, you know, moving forward, uh, there is the question of, you know, how, how much of the legal bills uh, is the RNC willing to foot? So, finally, let's get to the Rhodes case. On February 11th, Elmer Stewart Rhodes' attorneys, uh, Philip Linder and James Bright, both of Texas, I believe Dallas, filed a motion to appeal the decision to detain Rhodes prior to trial. That was a decision that was issued by a federal magistrate judge, and Rhodes is now in a private prison uh, near Oklahoma City, and um, I believe he actually had to go to Oklahoma City to uh, wind up testifying his hearing on Wednesday. But uh, because this case is being moved to D.C., they are appealing, and that appeal is being heard by the 2014 Obama appointee, uh, Judge Amit Mehta. So uh, I guess I can talk more about him later, but uh, I would argue that he is very well suited to hear this case. So as it's... As soon as this became publicly available, uh, I was able to to download it and read it. Um, it's rather long. It's uh, over 40 pages, I believe, 41. And, um, you know, 
it's it's a, it's a bit of a strange document. I mean, let me just say that right off the bat. And I was reading it. I, I had certain questions, and it just seemed odd. and didn't necessarily seem to be the product of um, experienced trial attorneys. Uh, I know they're you know they're Texas attorneys rather than you know attorneys uh, who regularly appear uh, in D.C. You know, but one of them, uh, James Bright, particularly, is very experienced. Um, and they, really, Leonard and Bright, you know, both are you know normal attorneys. Uh, they Rosemary selected them on you know some sort of ideological basis. I don't know if they are secret oath keepers. Um, but in reading this, you know, it, it was kind of curious. And actually, it wasn't until I saw a tweet from. Um, Rhodes' hopefully soon-to-be uh, ex-wife, Tasha Adams, that it, it clicked to me. Uh, she said, I think that uh, Stuart wrote much of this himself. And reading it, yeah, there are certain similarities to many of his writings over the years that I have read. Uh, I've been following them, you know, well, more closely, actually, during the, the sort of the standoff era, but even prior to that, uh, as they, you know, uh, you know, 2009, 2010, that era, all the way up to 2014, 2015. You go take it through Ferguson, right? Um, but yeah, Rhodes himself actually, again, unlike Mike Vanderbo, who's an you know obsessive blogger, uh, did very little of his material. I, I talked about this, uh, how his son Dakota characterized him as is fundamentally a lazy person. Um, you know. And that uh, basically his whole lifestyle was just designed to prevent, you know, so he wouldn't have to personally work. Um, and even with regard to the Oath Keepers, uh, you know, even though he's certainly capable of writing, uh, he didn't actually wind up producing a lot of the material for the Oath Keepers website. And if you go to the Wayback Machine, you can actually see this. Uh, you see that, you know, he was Elias, Elias, alias Elias, something like that. He winds up, you know, hiring a succession of people. Uh, to serve as his sort of webmaster slash editor slash person who copy, copies and pastes URLs from Infowars uh, to actually provide content uh, to, you know, people who have violent fantasies about the apocalypse. So, but it just, it does seem very similar. I mean, I think that she is, is right. Um, and so, you know, as I'm going through it, uh, there, there are certain sections that I think that were, you know, you can, you can see his hand. Um, he has a, a kind of an idiosyncratic writing style. It is um, rather identifiable. Um, so, I mean, despite the fact that he loves to use hyperbole and he's sometimes rather flowery and effusive, um, there's some, he's got some odd characteristics that seem idiosyncratic to him. He doesn't like to use compound sentences, for example. So most of his sentence structure is very, very simple, right? You know, uh, there'll just be uh, just, you know, a subject, object, uh, you know, verb, and that, that's it, right? Well, that would be different language, whatever. Uh, <laughs> subject, um, verb, direct object, you know, period. And he is this aversion to taking two related ideas and connecting them together using uh, conjunctions, right, or punctuation. So, I mean, most of the sentences are just rather simple declarations of fact. Uh, the, the ideas that are expressed, you know, are just, I mean, they're, they're, it's 
I don't want to say the declarations of fact because very often uh, they're they're his opinions, but nonetheless, they are just declarative. They're just you know, um, my dog is a uh, chestnut color, you know, and something like that. My dog actually is chestnut color. Uh, you may occasionally hear him barking in the background, although he's he's happily sitting next to my office desk at the moment. So, yeah, and, and he also you know has this, a tendency to. Uh, you know, use certain words that where he's trying to pass uh, as a clever person. Um, but what's most remarkable to me, anyway, is the complete and utter lack of copy editing, right? So this is a legal document. He's a trained lawyer. Uh, he went to Yale, and presumably uh, he learned how to write there if he hadn't learned how to write before. Um, and, of course, all writing is rewriting. And so it's part of the process, right? You know, you should edit your own work. And I don't think that that's something that Elmer Rhodes winds up doing. So, I mean, very briefly, I'm going to just read a few uh, selections that are not logically or thematically related at all. Uh, but just kind of things where it's like, that's kind of odd. There's just like, there's typos that you wouldn't expect. I mean, he's got two lawyers, right, drafting this document for him. Um, and they presumably also have paralegals at their firms. And yet, um, this saying, literally, like every other sentence, there are, you know, various typos. So I'll give you an example here. Quote, the Oath Keepers have provided such services to conservative groups at multiple rallies all over the country, which necessitated by the aggressive and assaultive nature of violent left-wing groups, such as Antifa. Now, did you catch that? What was missing there? which are necessitated or which were necessitated by the aggressive and assaultive nature, et cetera, and so forth. So, I mean, obviously the claim itself is nonsense and it's exactly the same claim that um, Rhodes made on his oathkeepers.org website in the fall of 2020, um, which has now been taken down. And unfortunately I can't find it anywhere. Uh, they, because the, the archive page is gone, Wayback Machine only goes as far back as 2016. I mean, it's got every iteration of the Oath Keepers site from their Blogspot site to when they switch over uh, to the oathkeepers.org site. But yeah, I mean, there's this claim that, you know, the group is providing security at, at Trump rallies. But um, again, you know, it, it's just kind of weird to me that you've got essentially two attorneys writing this and uh, they don't know how you know, how to use verbs, right? You know, which are or was necessitated uh, by the aggressive and assaultive nature of violent left-wing groups such as Antifa. Um, and again, you know, I mean, and even even in this actual motion, right, you know, uh, Rhodes is inconsistent, you know, arguing that, well, we're, we're nonpartisan, but, you know, continually just uh, slandering the left, uh, which as far as I can see has never done anything to him personally. Right. You know, other than pay the, the taxes uh, that, you know, he doesn't want to pay um, and, you know, and just, uh, you know, put him I and mean, put himself out there as, as a far right, uh, you know, I mean, really just anyway, it, it is kind of odd, this insistence on nonpartisan. Just say it, you know, I mean, just come out and say it. Uh, you're 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 nakedly partisan. You were pretending not to be nakedly partisan before, but you know this. In this, your final confrontation 
with the federal government. Let's just be a little bit honest, Dewey. Anyway, so um, here's another passage. Uh, you know, and again, this, this goes to just the way he tends to write, right? This inability uh, for some reason to write sentences that are compound sentences. Quote, it should be stated and also emphasized, okay, if you're stating something, why do you need to say that it's also emphasizing? Again, this is the kind of stuff, stuff that, you know, I, I very much doubt was written by either of his attorneys. I mean, it's not that all attorneys are great writers, right? But, you know, if you're going to craft a polemic in your motion, uh, do a better job than this, you know? Um, anyway, it should be stated and also emphasize that the government tellingly omitted, right, there should be a comma in there somewhere, um, it should be stated and also emphasized that the government tellingly admitted that communicating through social media and or encrypted messaging services is not illegal. Purchasing legal weapons through legal channels by persons who are not prohibited from owning those weapons is not illegal. Coordinating with people in different parts of the country to meet a specific time and place is not illegal. Being a member of a militia-type group and engaging in military-type training is not illegal. So, you know, there are, there are other ways that you can say that, but again, it's irrelevant to what the, the government is actually alleging, right? Uh, the, the government is not charging him with those things, but they are elements of the crime. And again, as an attorney, you know, they, you can do things that are individually, you know, not necessarily illegal, but uh, he doesn't seem to understand the crime with which He's been charged. I mean, so, you know, there's this sloppy, magical thinking, and then there's just the sloppiness of the, the way he, he writes. Um, or Linder or Brett. Maybe I'm falsely attributing this uh, to uh, him when, in fact, is our, you know, the work of his attorneys. I'm not sure. Quote, of course, when they entered, they were in a formation that is very similar to that which is used by military extraction forces due to it efficacy. Did you catch that right? Due to it efficacy. Due to it efficacy. Okay, very, you is from Yale. Gotcha. Quote, as the myriad of videos that day show, the breaches to the Capitol were committed by protestors that had amassed outside, not at the behest or order of anyone, including roads. So again, I don't know. Breaches to the Capitol ought to be breaches of the Capitol. Uh, anyway. Quote, As the Capitol was cleared and the crowds began to dissipate, Rhodes and other members met at a point on the Capitol grounds and then returned to Virginia, ultimately going dinner at Olive Garden to celebrate their alleged overthrow of the government. Scarecrow. Right. Ultimately going dinner at Olive Garden. You know, um, it, it's consistent, right? I mean, those are just a, a couple of examples, literally off, I think, you know, two pages. And the, the, the types of errors are consistent with stuff that you pull off of the oathkeepers.org site when Rose could actually be bothered uh, to actually write something from the site. Um, these are actually, I don't know, you know, and at the time, I, I, I actually thought back then that, you know, this is maybe a common man kind of act, 
right? This is just kind of his just folks way of depicting himself as a man of the people, you know, uh, who's not really up with all that sophisticated book learning. Um, but no, no, I mean, this is, you know, and I really don't think his attorneys, um, if they're worth whatever it is he or his uh, various zealots are paying them, uh, you know, would have actually submitted. Um, it's almost like he's got this mild form of aphasia that manifests itself in uh, the writing itself. So I'll let that go. Um, but again, Tasha Adams says, you know, she kind of recognizes it. It sounds very familiar to me as well, especially with regard to the, the topics and themes that are present in the motion. Uh, because, you know, he just, he uses a lot of the same uh, language that he would use uh, in his Oath Keepers nonsense. And uh, a lot of it is just irrelevant to the case. He's writing, he's spending a lot of time when he should be arguing, I'm not dangerous, I'm not a flight risk, uh, to argue about the same stuff that he was, you know, continuously arguing about. You know, and he still characterizes it as, you know, a nonpartisan group, right? Well, you know, again, you, you literally went to war with the federal government because you lost an election and you couldn't man up. You don't engage in electoral politics. You don't go out and register voters. You don't knock on doors. You just play around in gu with guns. You know, you don't do the hard work of electoral politics. You don't even understand the hard work of electoral politics. You just want to go out and, and play in the woods with your buddies and, you know, sleep on each other's couches all day. Right? You know, you don't understand how elections work. Sometimes you lose, and that's okay. You go back to the drawing board, and you plan, and you fundraise, and you knock on doors, you canvas, you make phone calls. Uh, you, don't, you don't storm the Capitol, all right? That's not, that's a, that's a, a giant tantrum. So, in any event, um, you know, it, it just doesn't sound like something that's crafted by uh, you know, two experienced trial attorneys. And uh, it, these are actually the kind of errors that are, are easy. And that's what was remarkable to me is actually, I don't think either Bright or Linder uh, even proofread this. I mean, maybe it was written in haste. Uh, or maybe, maybe Stewie was, uh, Elmer, excuse me, was writing this uh, over the course of the year, right? You know, maybe this is something that he was doing in his spare time. So, again, returning to the uh, pre-trial motion that Rhodes' attorneys, or perhaps himself, uh, drafted. Here's the central question, according to them. Quote, it is, First, it has been documented through interviews and de depositions with Rhodes and others that there was a belief that President Donald Trump would invoke the Insurrection Act necessitating a need for militias and other groups to defend that declaration. When that invocation did not come, Rhodes took no action before or after that could be considered seditious by any rational observer. Second, when that invocation did not come by January 30th, 2021, the defendant seized all preparation and communication for it. Rhodes is a decorated former member of the United States military, he has taken his vow to defend the United States and obey the orders of the president as a lifelong commitment. In fact, this is the very basis of the Oath Keepers Foundation. 
When he believed that the president would issue an order invoking the Insurrection Act, he was prepared to follow it. When that invocation did not come, he did precisely nothing. The government would like this court to believe that this is sedition. When, in fact, it is the opposite. It is loyalty to an oath taken in defense of the country. Capitalized. If the defendant had intended to instigate and coordinate an attack against the United States government, he would have done so. He did not, and the government's attempts to twist the facts to say that he did are easily disproven. Okay. All right, well, I have so many issues and questions regarding that. Um, first off, just because you believe something to be true, and it has no rational basis in fact, doesn't oblige you to behave in any kind of certain way. Uh, you know, you can have all kinds of expectations. You can expect that aliens might land on the lawn of the White House. It doesn't oblige you to do anything. Secondly, um, no one's, you know, when was the last invocation of the Insurrection Act that, you know, why does Rhodes have this belief that the Insurrection Act is going to be invoked? Also, what basis does Rhodes have to uh, believe that he has any authority or capacity whatsoever to, uh, you know, actually obey the president under these circumstances? Uh, you are not, you know, you can't just self-deputize yourself to go provide private security. Um, and finally, well, I mean, there's so many more other problems with this basic argument, but what... You know, the, if the government is asserting that you have a plan to instigate and coordinate an attack against the United States government, the correct answer isn't to say, well, if I had wanted to, I would have done it. The correct answer to say is, I would never do that. That's the correct actual answer. As a matter of fact, it's actually in the Oath Keepers bylaws, right? Um, so, you know, the, the fact that he says, well... If I had wanted to, I would have. Um, and in fact, he did, right? Uh, and that's why he's in court. Um, and he's acting as though, you know, that were crazy. But he went all the way to D.C. and brought teams of people with him, all dressed in paramilitary uniforms with little Oath Keepers patches, uh, claiming to be militia. You know, when... A lot of the Oath Keepers material says, well, we're, we're not a militia. Well, then on what basis are you claiming to be acting as a militia, right? So, you know, he's, he's doing the wrong thing here. And the hyperbole that he's using uh, misses the point. Rose isn't charged with owning a gun or using encrypted communications. He's charged with leading several groups of Oath Keepers from the ellipse to the Capitol where they assaulted police and went inside the Capitol in an effort to obstruct the Electoral College vote count. And there are major factual points in the, the government's indictment and the statement of facts that, that really just doesn't address at all. Um, you know, and of course, for every point that they've got listed describing his chat communications, they've got more. And they actually talked about some of that in uh, the pretrial detention hearing, which we will get to in a minute. So, you know, and again, a lot of a lot of this document is just 
bizarre kind of screeds that don't further his case any, you know, at all, really. He, he writes stuff like this. Quote, as is common in today's society, there is a portion of the population that seeks to label certain political groups with nonsensical pejoratives simply because they have policy differences. Okay, I, I, I can't let that go. He just described himself, right? He just described himself. He is the one who sees uh, Democrats, for example, as an existential threat to his way of life of, you know, sleeping on a couch or whatever, uh, playing dress up with his little buddies. The group has been falsely maligned by the mainstream media, left-wing organizations, and even members of the federal government as white supremacists, racists, and sexists. End quote. Again, the government is not charging them with those things. The, char the government has listed a series of actions that constitute, taken as a whole, some of those actions, you know, not illegal on their own, but taken as a whole, constitute a seditious conspiracy. And plus, you know, as we saw in the last episode, uh, maybe Stuart Rhodes hasn't visited the Oath Keepers website, but for years they were running nonsense from InfoWars, uh, spouting racist garbage about the, the Great Replacement Theory. But, you know, that doesn't matter. This isn't part of the government's case. It doesn't go to the government's case. Uh, you know, and the government isn't charging them with nonsensical pejoratives. The government is charging them with a, a set of behaviors. You know, if Stuart Rose hadn't gone to the Capitol, he wouldn't be in front of Judge Maida. He wouldn't be in pretrial detention. And, uh, you know, again, this invocation of the Insurrection Act, what reasonable basis did he have to believe that? And under what understanding, you know, if you're offering this legal rationale, what gives you the right to self-deputize to bring weapons into D.C.? Potentially, and he missed that, right? He's potentially going to bring weapons into D.C. Well, how does that, you know, how is that not a violation of D.C. law? So, you know, he's not, and this is, he's basically making the same argument about the Oath Keepers that he has made all along, but it's never been tested in federal court. And moreover, what he's doing is he's, he's tipping his hand to the case that he intends to bring at trial. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, I gave you that stuff from Dan Page in Missouri, right? Um, you know, as kind of background on what the Oath Keepers actually believe. They have this two-pronged strategy. They have the PR that says, we're not racist and sexist. And, you know, privately they're holding meetings with people like Dan Page who are, you know, saying that Obama is illegitimate and, you know, was born outside the country and all that kind of other nonsense when really they just don't like the first black president of the United States. So... Rose keeps writing in the chat, you know, several times about how, you know, the, the battle of the attack on the Capitol is, is like the, the battle of Lexington and Concord. Quote, and this is quoting Rhodes uh, from the signal chat uh, cited in uh, the indictment. Hey, the founding generation stormed the governor's mansion in Massachusetts and tarred and feathered his tax collectors, who, I don't know who's... Uh, presumably the governor, and they seized and dumped tea in water. In water, that's right, they dumped tea in water. Okay, they didn't fire on them, 
but they street fought. That's where we are now. Next comes our Lexington. It's coming. So this is we're evidently a pre-Lexington uh, phase of the insurrection. Again, you know, he knows what that is, right? I mean, he doesn't really have any real understanding of, of history, uh, but you know, he believes that you know we are at this point in history. You know, um, never mind. You know, any any number of sort of profoundly ahistorical things that he's you know claiming there. Uh, you know, we was like you, you're not upholding electoral democracy uh, by attacking the duly elected government of the United States. And Rose does nothing to do to refute these kinds of claims from the indictment. He's more concerned with dealing, well, you know, with these claims that the Oath Keepers are racist or sexist, which, again, the government, that, that doesn't appear in the indictment, right? The government is charging the behavior, not uh, whatever crazy things they believe in private about Barack Obama being secretly born in Kenya or, um, you know, the idea that some global elite is going to crash the economy and for nefarious purposes, even though the economy actually serves their own interests rather well. So he's got this kind of rationalization, you know, where it's like, it's fine. You can have these crazy beliefs. That doesn't matter. What Your actions are chargeable. You know, that's the problem here. When you were on the web, you're right. You know, when you were just had your website and you were reposting Infowars stuff, you didn't wind up in federal prison. Guess what? This is why you're in federal prison. To explain why you went to the Capitol. Um, so, you know, again, he can claim that he believed the monkeys were going to fly out of Joe Biden's butt, but that doesn't matter. You know, that that's a, a silly belief. The silly beliefs behind your actions. It's the actions that the, the government is, you know, are central to the government's case. And their case is very strong. And it's built upon this mountain of chat messages that they have that Rhodes does nothing to actually dispute in the indictment or in his motion to uh, exempt himself from pretrial detention. All right, so finally, I'm going to talk about uh, the bond hearing or the uh, detention hearing on Wednesday at 3 p.m., um, which I, I live tweeted. So if, you have, if you're on Twitter, uh, be sure to check that out at C-A-P-I-N-S-U-R-R-E-P. Um, of course, Judge Maida was there. Ahmet Maida, Obama appointee, uh, you know, is presiding in the case. So he's there for the pretrial detention hearing. He'll be the judge in Elmer's case, which I'm sure is something uh, with which he is thrilled. Uh, he loves Barack Obama, despite the fact that, uh, you know, President Obama was born in Kenya. I'm sure he's a, he's, you know, he's a big fan. Um, and, yeah, we're supposed to be, what... They say, like, you know, these lines, well, you know, 50 callers or whatever. Um, but uh, apparently there were as many as 116, maybe more people uh, calling in. So there's, a, there's probably a good chance that uh, many people who are listening to this podcast, uh, because that's my audience, uh, were also uh, calling in. Um, but I was number five, so I got there a little early, and I actually got to hear, uh, I think, uh, pretty much, you know, just as they turned... Uh, the mic on, um, and at that time, there was his uh, his cousin, uh, who's appearing, I, I assume, virtually, uh, one 
I had her down as Kelly, but I, I think it might be Kayla. Um, didn't ever give her last name and actually didn't wind up uh, speaking uh, very much. Um, there was a Mr. Green who was waiting outside. That is, of course, Mike Simmons. And there was this uh, interesting little bit of theater before the pretrial detention hearing began, which was um, the insistence that nobody's using their last names. Now, I believe that this comes from Mr. Rhodes' attorneys, uh, or Mr. Rhodes himself is instructions to the attorneys that they didn't want any of his uh, witnesses or custodians to use their names. Uh, quote, you know, uh, I believe the comment was something about being harassed, uh, the possibility of people being harassed if their identities were known. So um, that was something that, you know, uh, quickly went by the wayside. You know, I don't think it's a, it's a real concern because Rhodes himself winds up breaking that his own rule later on. You know, surprise, surprise, right? I mean, you know, Elmer likes to say, well, we're never going to surround cities. And then he brags about how he's got DC surrounded and we don't participate in coups. And he winds up participating in coups, you know. Uh, he, he winds up breaking his own rules all the time. So the first note I have, actually, uh, was that Elmer shaved. Uh, that comment was made, I believe, by his cousin, uh, who said that he looked nice. He'd apparently had a shave and a haircut. And I didn't get here at all, but there's some kind of comment about how uh, he has, you know, commissary, right? So if you're not familiar, uh, you get three squares every day in prison, uh, but you also have access to the prison commissary. And if you have a job or if people put money in your commissary account, you can actually buy things, right? Like Top Ramen or uh, special radios that are transparent so that you can't store things in them. And even uh, apparently uh, chicken, which, which he likes. So... Um, I have a note here that, uh, you know, as, as I mentioned last time, uh, I believe that, uh, James Bright rather than Philip Linder is going to be the main attorney at trial. Linder is there to assist him. Uh, and he rather continuously defers to, uh, Bright, uh, except with regard to questions of, uh, dealing with the, uh, potential custodians and maybe witnesses as well. So they appear to have some sort of functional division of labor. But uh, throughout most of the hearing, uh, it, and, and the two men actually sound kind of similar. Uh, they don't have marked Texas accents or anything like that. Um, but they, they actually sound a bit similar. Uh, but you can, you, in future hearings, you'll be able to tell that, you know, Bright is the one who's doing most of the targeting, talking, most of the uh, legal argumentation or most of the, the presenting of the, the case in Maine. Um, so during the hearing, uh, you know, th there's this idea that, um, you know, it's presented by the government, they go first and, you know, they, there's direct quotes from, uh, signal chat, uh, one of which I, I took a note of because it was a signal chat that's not included in the indictment quote. Trump can and should invoke the Insurrection Act, but that is unlikely. So Trump had, you know, Rhodes, sorry, had this idea that Trump, you know, might invoke the Insurrection Act. But uh, in these signal chat comments, apparently, he thought that was unlikely. And it's, it's interesting because, well, if that's the case and you were there because you thought they were going to invoke the Insurrection Act, but you also thought it was unlikely, 
why show up, right? I mean, he's refuting his own claim in his own motion. And I thought it uh, was telling that the AUSA actually said that. Uh, the prosecutor, the AUSA rather, is a, a Catherine Rakotsky, if I'm pronouncing that right. I don't think I actually heard anyone actually pronounce her name, um, but I think she did a, a very credible job, absolutely better than the defense, um, in my opinion, as, as a non-lawyer less listening in. Uh, although, you know, the, the defense were certainly uh, very you know measured and competent and they're their demeanor was appropriate, unlike some parts of their the, their motion. Um, there, there is the claim that is made, of course, uh, in Mo Rose's motion that I thought was a bit interesting because Meta appears ready to take it head on. Uh, Meta comes right out and says, "I'm not an expert on the Insurrection Act, but," uh, and. There's a reason why he's not an expert on the Insurrection Act. There's a reason why no one is a, an expert on the Insurrection Act, except for, uh, you know, if we kooks, perhaps. Uh, I've made reference to the dead letter drawer of American jurisprudence. That's where the Insurrection Act is. Uh, this is not a thing that winds up getting invoked. Um, you know, we have the National Guard. Uh, it functions just fine. There is reluctance for a number of constitutional reasons that are very sound to... Uh, you know, invoke the Insurrection Act. Uh, we can ha we have civil authorities. We have the National Guard that can usually take care of business without, you know, giving sweeping uh, power to the, the executive. You know, the ways that might violate the Constitution. Uh, nonetheless, Mita says, you know, I'm not an expert, but I think he's going to become one. Uh, my feeling is that he's going to study up on the Insurrection Act. And he's going to take this argument head on. He's very clear on the central argument. And I'm looking at a lot of the reporting on this. By the way, I'm just, it's like, I'm not sure. I was listening to the same phone call that many of the reporters were listening to. I will say it right out right now. Um, it's 1225 uh, on the East Coast. I'm trying to get this out before tomorrow um, because uh, apparently Judge made his decision on detention. I would be shocked if Judge Maida is going to order him to be released under any conditions. I do not think that that is going to happen. That is not what happened in that hearing. Nothing that happened in that hearing made me think that Maida is going to order Rhodes be released under any set of conditions. Uh, he was very skeptical of all the defense claims and... Uh, he appears to be willing to take this central question of whether or not, you know, private militias can effectively self-deputize and violate local law, um, you know, at the order of the president. And, uh, you know, he reads aloud from this, the, the Insurrection Act, and the text of the Insurrection Act itself says rather explicitly, state militia. And he took that claim head on. And he talked about, well, yes, there are groups from Florida, there are groups from North Carolina, there are groups from Ohio, but they just declare themselves those groups. They are not, in fact, affiliated in any way with the state government of those states. They are not, in, in that sense, operating under any uh, cover of legitimacy. And if guns are illegal in D.C., uh, how is it that you say that, you know, 
you can put guns in Virginia and then bring them into D.C. when that is a violation of D.C. law. And that is not a claim that Rhodes addresses, nor do I think it is one that he will be able to address uh, at all. So uh, he also has problems, Maida does, with these proposed custodians. So this is apparently, I want to get the familiar relationship right, Rhodes's mother's half-brother's daughter. So his cousin, but I want to say half-cousin. I don't know what the exact nature of that relationship is. Um, so it's his cousin and her husband, or the proposed custodians. And um, that's the proposed custodial arrangement. They have several acres out there somewhere in California, unspecified in court. Um, and there's a detached house, and there's apparently also a cabin, and Rose would be staying in the cabin or perhaps the detached house with the elderly parents of his cousin. So that would be his mother's half-brother and his wife, apparently. Uh, if, if I'm getting the familiar relations correct, uh, that wasn't uh, actually spelled out in court. So Mina has a problem with this, right? Uh, for one thing, the government, and he doesn't talk to this, but I think he's going to take it into consideration. Um, the government does address the question that uh, they know that at one event, his cousin was at a Oath Keepers event and live-streamed it enthusiastically on Facebook. Um, and her husband had, at the detention hearing in Texas, said that no one in the family had any affiliation with the Oath Keepers. And yet we have her attending Oath Keepers events. So one of the two custodians has actually uh, already uh, stated something that wasn't true in the context of uh, the, the matter of Stuart Rose's detention. So that is a non-starter. That is not something that you get to do. And I don't think a lot of the reporting has picked up on this, but that's just kind of automatically disqualifying, right? You know, if the judge is asking you uh, whether or not you are a member of a terrorist group and you say, um, no, no one in the family is a member of a terrorist group, and then they've got you on video on Facebook showing up at a terrorist group's event, um, that's kind of a problem. So uh, there's also the issue of her parents, right? So, and, and again, this is something that his lawyers didn't pick up on, Rhodes himself didn't pick up on, but uh, it might be because they practice in Texas and maybe things are a little bit different in Texas. Um, but, you know, if you've got adults in the household and you're claiming that they are going to be providing, quote, adult supervision uh, or acting in some sort of custodial status in the federal system, you're going to be interviewed by pretrial services. Those people have to be interviewed by pretrial services. Uh, her parents haven't been cleared, but they've offered them up as sort of uh, adjunct custodians. So that is why the delay. That is why Maida himself was unable to rule. And so a lot of people are upset. Well, why does it take him 24 hours? Well, it's just going to take him that, that long because pretrial services has to actually uh, interview these two uh, elderly adults, his half-cousin's parents. So uh, presumably his, I believe, his, his mother's half-brother and his wife. Another problem that Maida had, which again leads me to believe that Rhodes will not be released, is that um, uh, Linder who is handling this part of the hearing, says that uh, Rhodes would be employed by his cousin's husband 
And Mina actually interrupts him and says, no, 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 no. If I am considering this, then the conditions are going to be just shy of prison. It's go- you're going to be in that house. You're going to be in that domicile. You're not going to be connected to the internet. And you're not going to be going anywhere to work. You know, I mean, and this is a job that is apparently on the property. So, you know, apparently uh, his attorneys thought, well, uh, having gainful employment and doing work is just automatically good. That's a good thing. Um, Mavis says, no, no. What we want is, is safety and security. Uh, what we don't want is him, you know, going out and doing whatever it is that they want him to do in exchange for a room and board. So Mita shut that down forcefully and Linder rather meekly, in my opinion, just kind of backs down and doesn't take it up. Um, Because again, this is a federal district judge, right? You know, uh, something that I think Rhodes doesn't wind up uh, really fully understanding at some points of the hearings. So um, there's a question in the motion uh, as to why uh, Rhodes wasn't arrested. And, um, you know, they sent some, some agents out in May. And interestingly, even though it was on unrelated matter, they sent these agents out who were agents that Rhodes knew apparently from 2014 from uh, the, the Bundy standoff and some other standoffs. So that's kind of sus. He's, he's, they sent out FBI agents that he already knew that he, you know, apparently has some sort of pre-existing relationship with them. And they are chummy. And guess what? They, you know what? It worked because they, that, at that point, that's where Rhodes manages to give up his phone. And that's relevant to the government's case because, of course, the government only gets his phone in May and it takes the government that long to go through all of the evidence on his phone, all of the chats. And, of course, the, uh, the AUSA uh, makes a point that they're also looking for exculpatory evidence, right? Uh, they're looking, you know, they, they have to be able to present everything at Discovery. And so they say that, that is the rationale for why the charges uh, took as long to bring as they did. Now, um, this part is, is you know, kind of interesting to me because it goes against one of my pet theories. Uh, in the government's indictment, which I already knew, uh, but it was stated in, the, in court, um, the theory is that the QRF, the Quick Reaction Force, was there to effectuate the breach itself, um, but was proved unnecessary, right? Because the government, because Trump never invoked the Insurrection Act. My theory, my alternate theory is they wanted to delay the vote. And we know that part of Stack One went in there to look for Nancy Pelosi. My belief is that they sought to take members of co- Congress hostage, if they could, and to occupy the Capitol that they thought that they and the crowd would wind up taking control of the Capitol and that they could then have a standoff. Why do I believe that? Because past behavior predicts future behavior. And all of Rhodes' activities when he's engaging with federal law enforcement involve some kind of standoff. And so I believe that a standoff was part of the plan. And I believe that that is why the weapons were there. But according to the government's case, that's not the case. According to the government, um, they thought that, you know, well, the, the guns were going to be ferried across the, the river to effectuate the breach, right? And I don't think that's the case. I actually think that they're wrong. Um, so I think Rhodes is actually right that the government's wrong about why the QRF was there, but wrong about why they weren't deployed. 
Um, so, you know, I think the guns were there because Rhodes eventually uh, envisioned somehow, hostages or no, a standoff with the federal government. And that's why they had the, the QRF. That's why they had the guns. That's why they had, as Ed Vallejo says in the charging documents, 30 days worth of food. You don't need 30 days worth of food if you're just going to storm the Capitol. You need 30 days worth of food if you're going to have a standoff with the federal government. Okay? And there's a whole incident at Malheur where, um, you know, they forgot to bring snacks and they put out an appeal on social media saying, we want snacks. And people were literally sending them bags of dicks. Uh, you know, like little gummy dicks, right? Um, you know, <laughs> for them to snack on. Um, but, you know, and the internet did did its thing back then and, you know, turned it into amusing memes. They brought snacks this time. Um, but again, you don't need 30 days worth of snacks uh, because, you know, you, you plan to just go into the Capitol. Uh, they were planning, I believe, to stay. So my theory of it is a little bit different than the government's theory, but the government had thousands of pages of chats that I do not have access to. And so they may have uh, something behind that belief that the QRF was there to help effectuate the breach. So uh, another interesting thing that happened in court was that, uh, according to James Bright, Kelly Meggs did that on his own, referring to the storming of the Capitol. Uh, the claim is that, well, when Watkins and Meggs went into the Capitol, they did that on their own. Stewie had nothing to do with it. Um, yeah, so... According to the AUSA, of course, there are hundreds of thousands of messages uh, from Rhodes about the need for a bloody civil war. Uh, you know, so uh, again, you know, the idea that Kelly Meggs did that on his own is kind of absurd. Um, and there was, there was the idea presented that Rhodes regretted having Meggs and Watkins have command of their own teams. But he's also simultaneously saying, no, no, Mike Simmons was in command. I wasn't in command. But if you're the founder of the Oath Keepers and you're there, you're in command. I mean, the Oath Keepers is Stuart Rhodes. And also, if the reason why Megs and Watkins have teams is because you have, and he uses language, right? You know, I gave them teams. Then you're in command. They are subordinate to you. They are only acting because you, quote, gave them teams. So uh, later... Uh, Mr. Ween, Mr. Green, uh, Mike Simmons, winds up getting outed by Stuart Rhodes. He's like, well, Green's in the hallway. Why, why don't we bring him in? And um, I, I can't remember who it was, Mater or Bright, says, wait, we're not using surnames. He's like, and Rose just says, he's like, oh, well, but somebody said it after they turned on the media line, so it doesn't matter. Um, of course, my belief is that if they brought Green in, I mean, we knew who he was when he was an unnamed co-conspirator. Uh, you know, I, I don't think that it's going to be, you know, it would have been hard for people to figure out, right? They would have made reference to operational command or whatever, and everyone would know it was him anyway. Um, so the AUSA also questions the reliability of Person 10, which to my mind raises uh, questions about why Green isn't charged, why Mr. Simmons isn't charged. And the AUSA noted that Green sent out a message at 3.05 on January 6th, quote, we're, um, not we are, not, you know, we're the contraction. Uh, he forgot the apostrophe, which he noted. Uh, we're storming the Capitol. 
Right. So Green was apparently full knowledge of what was going on. Uh, and if that's the case, why he, you know, it remains uncharged. Um, and also simultaneously appearing to help the Rose defense. I don't know. Um, so, yeah. And, and also at some point while he's making his case, James Bright actually uh, brings up the future danger argument that yeah, Rose doesn't pose, uh, you know, a, a danger uh, in the future. Um, which, you know, again, really not smart, right? Because if anyone, if any of these January 6th poses a future danger, it's Stuart Rhodes. You know, Elmer has this army of uh, zealots who are well-armed. And as we've seen, as we saw on January 6th, willing to follow his orders. Uh, they've been thoroughly propagandized since, you know, 2011, 2009, whenever. And, you know, there's just... <laughs> it's like, no, they, they do pose a danger, despite uh, Mr. Rhodes's uh, representations to the contrary. And, you know, I'm certain that Judge Maida is going to take that into account. Also notably absent from the meeting, I should add, was Tasha Adams, um, you know, Mr. Rhodes's uh, soon-to-be ex-wife. And um, now there's some questions as to why that is, but uh, she uh, called the court in Texas during the original detention hearing and was able to give testimony about uh, the abuse and the paranoia and the guns and the, the violent apocalyptic fantasies and all the rest. We don't really know what was said, um, but it was apparently persuasive. Judge Maida has access to all of that. That is all on the record. And so it may be that the AUSAs did not believe that they needed her testimony because the judge already has access to all of that information. Now, uh, the government also makes the, the point that uh, Rose is very savvy with regard to uh, use of technology and encryption. And in fact, that, you know, there, there aren't really any conditions that you can impose on him. It doesn't matter that the, the little shed or whatever they used to be staying in doesn't have Wi-Fi. Uh, you know, he might find a way and, you know, um, the AUSA also said that, uh, you know, the defendant claimed that the presence of weapons was essential to support people on the ground to prevent the peaceful transfer of power. And that's right there in the indictment. So, you know, to my mind, the evidence that they have is very strong. Um, at one point, Maida ring, you know, does ask the question, uh, well, I noticed that you had originally charged uh, conspiracy to obstruct, and now you've charged seditious conspiracy. And the AUSA says that basically, um, you know, the reason why is uh, the use of force and that the QRF is a significant part of the case. And once they had more information about all that, that's when they made the decision to go to the seditious conspiracy rather than the uh, just conspiracy to obstruct, even though, you know, in terms of penalties, they're, they're both felonies, they're, they're very similar. Um, the government also maintains in the charging documents and uh, today, or sorry, yesterday in court, that um, the continu conspiracy continued after January 6th. Um, James Bright maintained that, no, no, there's no conspiracy, despite, you know, hundreds of all the, all the all the signal chat, 
he, he claimed that it was just an enormous amount of bombastic language. But again, there's a problem with that argument, right? I mean, yes, bombastic language by itself is fine, but if you, if I show up with, you know, guns in Virginia and I'm in D.C. and I have plans to ferry those guns to D.C. and I've stormed the Capitol and I've got information that says that I literally want to um, decapitate Nancy Pelosi in uh, that's that's in my messages, that's a problem, right? Um, Wright also makes this ridiculous claim that the Oath Keepers are, quote, meticulous about following the law. Now, this is something I blame the government for. I blame the government because they actually could have charged the Oath Keepers with any number of offenses during uh, the standoffs beginning in 2014, and they wind up not doing that. Um, a lot of this could have been avoided if the government itself had not been so uh, reluctant to, you know, uh, so afraid of having some sort of Waco or Ruby Ridge situation. And, you know, yeah, they're, they're not meticulous about, uh, of following the law. They've weaponized white privilege is what they've done. So the government also made a very good point, I thought, in, in stating that uh, even after the six, Rhodes continued the conspiracy. So again, that goes to dangerousness. That goes to uh, safety of the community. And also correctly notes that the political, political situation hasn't changed that much since January 6th. Same people are, are making the same bogus allegations about the, uh, the election, about, you know, uh, supposed fraud, when in fact, you know, even in the small number of voter fraud instances that we've seen, most of it was done by Trump people. He got them so riled up, they went and committed, you know, uh, voter fraud. Um, but, you know, apparently neither the left wing nor the right wing media ever uh, want to address that. Now, at this point in the hearing, Rhodes actually offers to testify. And um, he, he says, Judge, you know, it would be useful if I were to speak right now. And Maida, you know, um, my recollection is that he appeared to cut him off. Or either that or his what he said to Rhodes came like one nanosecond afterwards. And there, this is like, I think the most Maida spoke during the hearing, although he was actually a very active participant. Um, he said, you're an attorney, you, or you, no, he didn't say that. He said, you have a law degree, right? Because, of course, Rhodes is disbarred, and I think Maida is jabbing at that little distinction there. Um, you have a law degree. You know how this works. Um, and, you know, you, anything you say is, you know, can be used against you. You can be held accountable for the things that you say, and you would also expose yourself to cross. So I don't think it's a good idea for you to uh, testify at this time. And what was interesting was that Maida was kind of sharp with him. Um, and, you know, I think he saw it as an attempt by this arrogant former, you know, well, disbarred attorney to try to take over his courtroom. Um, this may be Rhodes's first federal case, but this is certainly not Amit Maida's federal case. This isn't even his first federal case involving a January 6th defendant. It's probably not his first, uh, defending your know, time in a case involving a sort of sovereign citizen adjacent kind of ideology. That's part of what they do. And, uh, you know, Rhodes wants to talk. There's no need for him to talk at this hearing and Maida shuts it right down. Uh, and when he concludes... Rhodes is silent, courtroom is silent. All uh, James Bright does is to just chime in 
and he just says either, and I, I, my recollection is a little fuzzy. Uh, it could be, you know, either I agree or I, I concur. Uh, just very quickly, kind of sheepishly, right? So, you know, uh, he's recognized that his defendant, that his client has, has ticked the judge off a little bit, uh, even by asking. So, uh, I, that, I thought that was a, a good moment. And it does make me curious, again, about some of the coverage where people are sort of ambiguous on this. I, I don't think that, you know, Judge Maida is well disposed toward this. He's ordered other people detained, and if anyone is going to be detained, the person who's facing the most serious charges and who has hundreds of followers and is also a transient um, probably ought to be detained. So uh, another claim that Bright makes during this hearing is that Rhodes has no real leadership role in the Oath Keepers. Um, and we're going to see that also at trial when and if this goes to trial. Um, Rhodes is, is going to blame it all on uh, Jessica Watkins and Kelly Meggs. Um, you know, good luck with that. Uh, I also noted that for some reason during the hearing, um, James Wright kept calling his client uh, Mr. Stewart which I thought was kind of odd. Um, I mean, his, his name is Elmer Stewart Rhodes. He goes by Stewart, um, but he's not Mr. Stewart. He's, he would be Mr. Rhodes. The other really good line that Maida issued was uh, with regard to the claim that uh, James Bright made that, um, you know, well, Elmer was out from January 6th until his arrest, nearly 13 months. And he didn't, you know, commit any other crimes in that time. Uh, and the AUSA said, well, yeah, but, you know, he was, he was uh, they arrested all the conspirators. And uh, he knows that, you know, we were probably looking quite closely at him. Uh, and then Maida says, uh, which I thought was remarkable, that in a homicide case, we don't say that the defendant hasn't killed anyone in a year and that there no, is no longer a danger. Um, again, this is kind of a silly argument, right? This whole, you know, not arresting someone. Uh, in fact, there are lots of cases where there's uh, more than a year that goes on between the, the crime and the arrest. Uh, and I, again, the skepticism and the, the tone of voice in some of these statements that were uttered by Meta leads me to believe that he's very skeptical of Brighton Linder. Uh, and he's very skeptical of the claims that Rhodes makes in his motion, and also that he is very willing to rule on the question of whether or not anything in the Insurrection Act authorizes private militias from around the country to come to D.C. and uh, possibly attack the federal government. Um, you know, which, as a federal judge, I think he should. I think that's a good claim to be skeptical of. It's central to the Oath Keeper's ideology, and it's never been ruled on in federal court. And I think this would be a good time to do it. And I think uh, Judge Amit Mehta would be the ideal judge to do it. Um, you know, there are some judges who are soft and squishy. Uh, Amy Berman Jackson, for some reason, keeps giving these people these stern lectures and then get just giving them very light sentences. Interestingly, some of the Trumpier judges, uh, people like McFadden, are actually giving, you know, tougher sentences than some of the Obama people. And I think that's because they realize that you know, they want eventually to move on, but they have an asterisk after their name. And, you know, they can't be, uh, you know, lenient with these, these Trump people. 
uh, the insurrectionists because, you know, that, that taints them, right? They have to demonstrate their independence. I mean, it's a lifetime appointment, uh, you know, uh, upon conditions of good behavior. You know, federal judges have lifetime appointments, so they don't need Donald Trump anymore. Uh, you know, and if they want to have a career in the future, it's a good time for them to say, hey, look, I know I was appointed by Trump, but really, I'm a real judge. Um, but Meta, you know, again, you know, Obama appointee, very smart, very, and not taking any crap, right? He's not taking any uh, crap from Stuart Rhodes or his attorneys. Uh, and this was a, uh, I want to say spicy, right? Judge Meta was spicy. Uh, and I loved it. And I, I, you know, I think he was going to be very good in this case. And I don't think that people are going to be disappointed in the outcome. And again, I said it before, I would be extremely surprised if he, if Stuart Rhodes uh, doesn't wind up in the Patriot wing, or the, excuse me, the traitor wing of the D.C. jail. Uh, or maybe Maida is going to decide to keep him somewhere else. You know, maybe uh, given uh, his beef with Jessica Watkins or some other people that they might find somewhere else in the federal system or uh, one of the various private prisons, contract prisons, um, you know, but Biden is actually shutting those down, which is a whole other issue uh, for the Bureau of Prisons. But, so, that's why I wanted to get this out. I wanted to just come here and say and reassure people that no, in fact, um, you know, I really think that Rhodes is not getting out. Meta is not buying it. Um, he's detained other people before. This is someone who is facing the most serious charges. This is someone who faces a very strong case. This is someone who they, they couldn't refute. Rhodes' attorneys did not try to refute the argument that political conditions are different, right? Um, you know, and so I really think that tomorrow at 1 p.m., after they've sort of pro forma gone through the process of interviewing uh, the the extremely apparently Trumpy parents of his half cousin, um, it doesn't matter, right? And again, people are people would ask why. Well, this is a process. A motion has been introduced. The judge has to give it a reasonable hearing, and then the judge has to to rule, right? So the judge can't just you know just sort of dismiss it from the bench and say, no, I'm not going to hear this. The judge has to be reasonable. The judge has to hear all the evidence. The judge has to entertain the notion. The judge has to determine whether or not the proposed custodians are, um, you know, uh, suitable custodians. This is this process that's determined by the rule of law, right? You know, not by what I want, right? I mean, you know, so that's, that's why this is happening. Um, but nonetheless, I... I mean, I'm perfectly willing to eat crow, but just given everything Judge Mehta said, the strength of the prosecution's case, and the weakness and the absurdity and sort of sovereign citizen-adjacent novel argument that Rose is making that, oh yeah, sure, anyone can just show up. You know, we had people like Floyd Rosenberg just showing up, right? Anybody just show up in D.C. and do whatever the fuck they want. I think that someone who's serving on the federal bench where they're dealing with bomb threats and all kinds of lunatics they're not going to be sympathetic to those claims. So, uh, I'd love to be right on that. Anyway, thank you so much for your listenership. Um, the, the community that we've built here, this little seminar, even though I realize it is a one-way kind of format, please do engage with the show on Twitter. Uh, if you are on any of the, the podcast 
platforms where you can actually uh, do a review. Please do write a review. I, and if you ever have any comments or questions or concerns, uh, you can DM me. My DMs are open. Um, and uh, thank you so much. I'm going to try to do these as often as I can. Uh, you know, it should be still be a bi-monthly podcast. I may do some shorter episodes as time permits. I realize that these last three have gone a bit long. Um, but for some reason, it doesn't appear to affect like people listening. For some reason, I can do a three-hour episode and people will still listen anyway. So thank you so much for doing that uh, while you do your laundry or your other chores. And uh, until next time, I'm Scott Kuhn, and uh, have a great weekend.